Jesus, Jesus, who else can hear our cries? Who else knows the reason why? Who else but you? Only you are true. You're the God of all creation. I belong to you because of what you do. You brought me through. You, only you, God, know the secret places of every heart. Only you know what tore us apart. That only you could rescue us because it's your heart. It's your love. It's all from above. And who are we that we would think so little of you? We wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. You brought us through. You've brought us through the pain, the agony, the stress of life and living in the world today. Only you should have a say because only you can be high and lifted up. Only you are great. Nothing else matters because the hour is late. Nothing else, Lord, but have your way. You need your women to trust, trust and obey. For you've created us for such a time as this. No time in history have women need to rise up and find out who they are in God and find their purpose of how he made you to be when you were born in your mother's womb. He had a plan for you. Yes. He knew you then. Thank you. And he's known you every step of the way. And we have been so naive, so ignorant, so uh, deceived and distracted. But you're the only thing that will stay. You're the only thing. Because your word is the truth. Your word is medicine. Your word is life and spirit in John 6. Life and spirit are in the word of God. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. This is why we gather together, Lord, to ask the Lord's blessing because we are your people. Oh. oh Lord, touch our hearts. Break our hearts open to their, your great love. I shouldn't be here in this place. None of us should. But God, you're going to touch hearts. I just believe, Holy Spirit, you're moving. The Holy Spirit is the workhorse of the church. And 
He wants to help. He's a helper, an encourager, a comforter. And in times past, he could not have his way. But you see, it's a new day. As I said in church a week or two ago, uh, this is a new season. We have a new reason to live. And I'm telling you, I am so glad that he would choose us for such a time and place. His heart roams to and fro looking, just looking for someone to say, Hi, Lord, here am I. Use me. Use me. I want to fulfill my purpose. You put me here for such a time as this. And you will enable us to find those purposes and to be the body connecting a network going out because in this place this is a holy place the sanctuary of God and many have trod and walked this place at this altar but it was for a purpose that's why we're still here because faithful men didn't let it go and give it up because they knew what you wanted to do they saw something they did their part but now it's got to be of the heart for the women to take their part too because this is a heart problem God, help us. It's the heart. It's of the heart. Because when you... Ex- oh, Lord. Let me... It's all of the heart. We have to know now that moments are precious. us to be alert and pray and keep looking to you for answers, solutions, because there is no way. So many times there is no way, but because you're the way, the truth and the life, it's you we must obey. It's to catch that glimpse of eternity and know that there's a real heaven. Heaven's a real place. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us in new ways and 
that we will see with spiritual eyes opportunities, how blessed we are, how thankful we can really be for that you've protected us and brought us through many dangerous toils and snares. I have already come. But Jesus knows the way. He's the one. No other gods, no other way. It's Jesus at the head of the army and Holy Spirit let us give you place to show us the way and help us on our way it's the journey we're all on a journey we're all on a journey we're all the same but we're all different Everyone is unique. Everyone has a purpose, a gift. You all do, and you may not know it yet, but it's there. And believe me, he wants you to find it. And you'll be fulfilled and happy because he is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. So thank you, Lord, that we're all in process. We're all on a journey. And you're coming alongside because, Holy Spirit, you're the guide. You can teach us. You can tell us. Because praise God, the three in one. Where would we be if Jesus didn't die on a cross for us? Where would we be? We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful life that you want to give us to go higher in you. Because the secret is what I found, is knowing him more through the word, the Holy Spirit, the word, the word, the word, and that knowing you... (laughs) makes everything else (laughs) pale in significance when we know, we really know you're by our side. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In you, we will abide. And in your word. And now, thank you, Lord, for taking us, taking each one another step closer to you and to know you more and to bring them through in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for gathering together. Harvest time. We can come together and celebrate our Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Be blessed.
Thank you so much for coming out today. Oh, I I really feel teary. See all you ladies go by at breakfast and thinking, oh my, what a beautiful sight, women. To see all the women. Oh, we're so glad you came. And we're starting a new journey, as Angela said, um, in Flourish. And, and now TJ added, it's so big. It's so big. And for everyone, it can be whatever you need and where your journey is and how God wants to meet you where you are. And uh, we want to be here to facilitate and to, you know, enable things to happen so that we can teach, reach, and connect the, um, the, the, the new, you know, logo of the church. And, uh, well, it's not so new anymore. But uh, the, what the women did and was the different scriptures. I think you might remember Ephesians 4 and um, especially, um, I'd like to read that because the teaching, connecting, reaching was found in scripture. And I saw it in the Passion Bible this morning through my husband, Pastor John. I asked him to look it up in the Passion and I just want to read it to you because there's a lot of ways to look at it because it's, it, it's the word. As, um, and I just want to read this to you quickly because it seems so loving. And Ephesians 4, 16. Um, For the body has been formed in his image and is closely joined together and constantly connected as one and every member has been given divine gifts to contribute to the growth of all and as these gifts operate effectively throughout the whole body we are built up and made perfect in love. Isn't that good? Yes. The love <laughs> over everything. Awesome. So now we want to uh, move along. So we're going to start with uh, Miss Angela. And she's going to. Thank you. Okay. Well, good morning again, and um, so, you know, we have like the breakfast kickoff, so what we're going to do today is we are all sharing um, a um, testimony, and that's all different uh, for the three of us, and my, uh, it's, it's some um, of the testimonies are going to be what happened, you know, for maybe after Christ. My biggest testimony is what happened to even come to Christ, so as you'll see. So I'm going to take you on a journey in my life, and um, I, got, I got 20 minutes to do this, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> so thank you, Jesus, to uh, give me the words exactly so I can communicate this to you in that little bit of time. So I'm going to start from the time I, I was age of eight, and I had a pretty much you know, de- a normal childhood. Parents were um, together, but at the age of eight, they divorced. From that time forward, 
Um, that was devastating to my mom. Um, she couldn't handle raising three kids as a single mom. She had some mental illness. So as me being the older child, I endured a lot of abuse, um, physical, mental, emotional. Um, so as that kind of like carried through um, up to my adolescence, by the time I was 13 years old, um, I wasn't um, entirely rebellious or crazy wild child at this point, um, but just trying to you live a normal life. A lot of the anger issues that my mom had towards my father was taken out towards me. Um, if my, my brothers acted up, I got taken out on me. I got punished for a lot of different things. Um, and I'm not trying to make my mom out to be a big monster. I'm not, I'm not in any way. Um, love my mom and through Christ um, healed our relationship. And um, you know, we, she lives in the same house. We have like a, you know, two families so she lives with us. So, um, you know, there's a lot of healing that God has, has done through that. Just to kind of paint the picture of what, what led on to my adolescence. I don't know exactly what happened, um, but I made my mom upset. And at the age of, I was just was, uh, barely 14, she, she packed in my bags and, and kicked me out of the house. So I had to find a place to go. So um, I did have some friends. Um, my my close, closest friends, and they were a Christian family. Her father was um, a pastor of a, a church at the time. They took me in. The only problem with that was um, to be like, okay, well, this is my first kind of like real Christian kind of exposure. I had um, been brought up not consistent in church at all. We, I had been baptized um, to the Catholic Church. I was, you know, um, went through the CCD classes, which is where you kind of be confirmed as a Catholic. And I remember at five years old, you know, you get your first communion. They gave me the, we the wafer, and they said, okay, well, this is um, Jesus and, and this wafer, so don't chew it. But that's actually Jesus being part of you. As a five-year-old, you know, you kind of, like, don't make sense of things like that. So I looked at the wafer. I'm like, Jesus ain't in this wafer. So I took and chewed it. I just eat it. I'm like, Jesus ain't in this wafer, okay? And so my mom says, listen, Jesus is in the wafer, okay? And when you go up there for your um, first communion, just give it to the priest. Don't chew the wafer. Okay, well, I went up there. I got the little wafer thingy from get my first uh, communion. Got the wafer as soon as I walked down the hall. I mean, the aisle turned around and started chewing that, that, that wafer. I'm just like a rebel at five years old. So anyways, um, but that's really all my kind of like um, religion or exposure to Christianity. I didn't have, um, we didn't really go to church. We just went, you know, Christmas, Easter, that's it. But here's my first family um, as a, a Christian family, some kind of that kind of influence. But they were very extreme. So I couldn't listen to music. Rock music was satanic. Um, I was only listening to, like, uh, Top 40 at the time. So I was like, oh, this is weird to me. Like, I'm just listening to Pat Benatar at the time, you know, uh, Duran Duran, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was extremely forbidden because he was Jehovah's Witness. And I was like, oh, no, we can't have that. So I, was, this, I couldn't make sense out of it. Um, so I would sneak and listen to my tapes, listen to my music. I would, um, Teen Beat Magazine, I remember that from like the, the early 80s. I mean, any kind of cutie, you know, cute guy who posts a picture up in the, on the wall. Nope, that's idolism. You can't do that. So they would strip those pictures down. And then they caught me listening to my music and then took away my radio. 
And then, then I was putting my pictures up in the closet. And they were like, nope, can't do that. So finally, they kicked me out of the house saying, you're bringing Satan in our house. So, okay. <laughs> now, during that time, my father was able to get custody of me during that summer. Um, so it was only a short time that I went back to my mom. And the social worker who came, they were like, well, we, you, know, you said you weren't abused. I'm like, well, yeah, that was because when you came to the house with your social worker, you had my mom sitting at the same table. So, um, of course, I was very fearful to admit about the abuse. And um, so what finally during that time, because the social worker got involved, I was able to get, um, go to my father. He got custody of me. Now, being in the school that I was, I was also being bullied at school. So you have, you know, I can't get away from it at home. I can't get away from it at school. So finally, when my father gets custody of me and I go to a new high school, I'm like, okay, I have a fresh start. And I am not going to be bullied anymore. I'm going to find, like, I'm going to find, I don't, I'll, I'll be whatever I need to be to fit in. If I, if I, I just want to be the coolest kids. I want to be the popular person now. I got a fresh start. No one knows me. No one knows anything. So I'm just going to do whatever I got to do so I can be popular. I can be cool. So with that kind of attitude, you can just imagine the road I started going down. When I started school, I met a, a girl, my next door neighbor, and I remember writing my diary how horrified, how extremely like shocked I was to see a fir my first bag of marijuana. So she, she you know, introduced me. This is like, you know, it was like second nature. It's like, hey, you want, want to smoke a joint? And I'm like, um, um, no. <laughs> I says, uh, not right now, maybe later. You know, just trying to still be cool, right? But eight months later, I smoked that joint. So, and then this uh, had me get into a gang. So, because, I mean, gang, that's pretty cool, right? Because if you mess with me, guess what? You're messing with all of us. So I had seen everything that there could be seen. I've seen people shooting up, snorting up, uh, smoking up, um, whatever. There was, there was everything. It was like a buffet table of drugs, always constantly in front of me. There was um, always constantly drinking. Um, by the time I was 15, I got taken home by the cops twice. I passed out in someone's lawn. Um, their parents came home, found me passed out in their lawn, and called the cops. One time I was in a car with a boyfriend of mine who was way older than I should have been, with, hit a parked car, went through the windshield. Um, neighbors called the cops, come in, get taken home by the cops again. Needless to say, I mean, between, this is 15, 16 years old, my poor father, what he's going through at this point. So, um, yeah, it was, um, I felt this was cool at the time, but, you know, inside, you know, it's really not, um, you know, you're empty and you're just trying to do what you can to find happiness and acceptance somewhere. But um, I knew it wasn't at the time at the church, at least that my thought was at the time it was not in the church. So, you know, fast forward a little bit. By the time I was turning 17, I had a, a serious relationship, serious, quote-unquote, um, with my oldest daughter's father. And um, by the time I was 18, we moved in together. And um, so this kind of relationship, with, of course, with the, when it's, there's no God in it, it wasn't just oil and water. It was bleach and ammonia, okay? So um, 
Now, at this point, I had the attitude, no one's going to hurt me. I, you know, uh, I'm not going down without a fight. If you look at me sideways, you're, you're going to get it. So I, you know, I would fight anybody. I would cause fights. I, so you, I went from being bullied to bullied. It's like kind of what Joyce Meyer says, you know, hurting people hurt people. And I want to tell you and share all of this with you is because you must have a friend. You must, you know, or know a child or have a child. Know somebody who is like, they're like, like they're really like I was. And you're like, is there really hope for this person? <laughs> okay, so I'm taking you down this journey because I want to see how, how you can see the most amazing transformation that can happen in anybody's life when you share the love of God. That's why the Bible is very specific and very strategic that our battle is not with flesh and blood. If you just looked at me at this time, like, man, this girl is hopeless. Oh, my, my father. I mean, he sent me away. Thank God he did. He sent me away to my grandmother for the whole entire summer to be away with my friends. And I believe that was the one thing that probably kept me alive. Because if I had not done that, I really believe by the Spirit of God, somehow I would have been dead. Now, I have seen people overdose. I had, you know, there's a lot of people who I partied with, got drunk with smoked pot with. I mean, I was thankful that I just never really kind of, I was too scared to do coke or heroin. Uh, I was just never, I never did that. My, my safe place was drinking. Um, and there was times where I drove home. I was so drunk. I mean, I don't know how God saved me from all of this stuff. I'm, I'm really telling you. It's just the grace of God. He saw the end from the beginning. He had to have seen that. He had to see right now that I can share this and, like, save somebody at least, or at least give somebody some encouragement to say, hey, you know, even how, no matter how bad you mess up, God is going to take you. You will open that door to him. He is going to take you places that you never expected and just and give you some kind of love and just a freedom they're just an amazing gift of um, acceptance and um, the righteousness of God, from the, no matter how bad it looks. So from, um, from that time, so I, had my, um, I was with my daughter's father, and um, I finally got the courage after all this abuse, and finally when my daughter was born, she saw us fighting. He threw him up against the wall. I started fighting back. I'm like, you know what? I'm the one paying all the bills here. I can really leave this situation. I'm just going to do it. And I finally got the courage, and I finally left it. But then you're, when you're lonely, you, you can't be lonely unless you accept God and have God fill that place. So then it went to another relationship. And that relationship wasn't great. It, ended, it, was, it was just founded on a bed of lies. And then I realized at that point that once I left that one, I'm not just hurting me, I'm hurting my daughter because there's two of us now. So I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, because I, I, friends after some time, they're like, oh, you need to get back in the dating scene. It's been some time. Well, that wasn't really working. So um, I remember, um, so I was going to be, I'm just going to be single for a while. I'm not going to date anybody. And then I was in a place where um, I was buying my first house and the financing wasn't um, too solid and some problems. I remember just, you know, throwing up a prayer at the time. I says, you know, I didn't really know what I was praying or doing, but I says, God, if you give me this house, I'll serve you. I'll give my life to you. I don't know what I was saying at the time. And so, um, well, I got the house, 
And guess what? I kind of forgot about God for a while. I went back to my clubbing, my drinking, my partying. Life is great, right? Um, and I thought, you know, everything's good. You know, I got my house and blah, blah, blah. So um, I remember doing some gardening and I dug up what I thought was a little statue of Jesus. Hey, remember me? Right? I was, just, I, I was buried in the ground. And I, I was like, what is this? And sold and behold, a little picture, a little statue of Jesus. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> put it up on the shelf, forgot about God again, right? So, but I had a friend who was a Christian, and we would, we would talk back and forth, and she really, really witnessed to me, um, and she finally gave me the book Left Behind, and I remember um, reading that story about the tribulation when Jesus comes from the rapture and the people get taken away. Um, I really encourage you to read it. There's a kid's version of it. So like for like the, the middle schoolers, there's a, a version of that. There's, um, and then the adult version, I highly recommend it. It's, it puts it, it's a fictional series about what, what it would be like actually when Jesus comes, raptures the church, people get left behind, and then what happens in the, um, in the whole apocalypse. So I read this story, and I'm like, whoa, I don't want to be left behind. So in the very moment when Buck in the story, get saved, I knelt down, I gave my life to Christ at that moment. So, and it was, it wasn't just like, um, I did, you know, kind of didn't know what I was doing at that time. I knew what I was doing at that point. I knew I was giving my life to Christ. I knew I was set free. I knew I, he had forgiven me. I, at that moment, it was like I was the, the, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, thrown down in the face of Jesus in the dirt, saying, okay, master, this woman's been caught in adultery. The law says to stoner, what do you say? Well, what did Jesus say? What did he say? Right? He didn't say anything at that point, right? So he kind of like knelt down in the dirt. And I'm kind of like thinking, in my mind... Why, you know, I'm thinking like Jesus did this to get the tension focused off the woman in the sin, in the dirt, and on him. Same thing, down in the dirt, right? With the woman, you know? And so he gets back up. Well, if you're without sin, throw the stone, right? Now, me being in the dirt here, I'm standing right before the one who could throw that stone, right? Because Jesus was there face-to-face with Jesus, he could throw that stone. He could say, yes, Angela, you use my name in vain. 1,235,165 times. Yes, Angela, you have committed adultery. You have lied, cheated, cheated, murdered. You have done everything. You've broken every single one of these commandments. I'm going to throw this stone at you. Did he say that? No. Where are your accusers? The very one who could accuse me wasn't there to do that. He said, you know, I go, you're forgiven. Go sin no more. Right? So I knew that. I knew that. And that's why, like, in Luke um, chapter 7, it's my, um, my favorite song is Mary's Alabaster Barks. And in Luke 7, you have a Pharisee doing kind of the same thing, right? Eating with Jesus. There's a woman in the city known as a sinner, 
I was pretty well known. I didn't care if you knew it. <laughs> I was, you know, pretty much wet out in the open. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I don't really care what you think about that. That was my thought at the time. So she was known as a sinner. And when she found out that he was reclining at the table at Pharisee's house, so she brought her alabaster box. So this is where I was. I brought my alabaster box to Jesus. I poured my alabaster box out. I'm forgiven now. Right? So I, as just as she did, I was weeping at his feet. Began wetting my, my, um, his feet with my tears. And I wiped them with my, my head of hair. And respectfully kissed his feet. As an act of signifying both affection and submission. But the Pharisee saw this and said to himself, what is he doing? Doesn't he know that she's a notorious sinner, an outcast, devoted to sin? Like, ew. <laughs> Gross. Come on, Jesus. Don't you know this? But doesn't he know that? <laughs> That's why, like, um, it's just amazing what Jesus says to this, because he knew what, knew, knew what, he, what he thought. And he said, you, to the Pharisee, you didn't give me a welcoming kiss. But from the moment that I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, for she loved much. Loved him much. That's why my favorite verse in the song from Mary's Alabaster Box I'm going to try to say stop crying and bawling my eyes out. But we're all crying here today. We have a good cry together. Is that you weren't there the night that he found me. You didn't feel what I felt when he wrapped his loving arms around me. Now I'm giving back to him the praise he's worthy of because I've been forgiven. And that's why. I love him so much. Thank you. Amen. I, I always told Angela when she told me that testimony. I never heard all of it, but she told me part of it. And I was saying to her that I truly believe that God woke somebody up in the middle of the night to pray. And I'm so glad that they were obedient. If all the people that God used to pour into my life were standing on this platform, you would not see me. My story is a little different. I was very sheltered. My mother was strict. I came from a Cape Verdean household. That the girls were in the house and the boys were out, you know. I was born in San Vicente, Cape Verde islands, land of music, hospitality, and resilient people, beautiful people. There's an old saying that Cabo Verde has more musicians per square kilometer than any other place in the world. And I believe it because my parents brought back the music, the hospitality, and the resilience when they came to America. Daddy who I got my love for gardening from. Left his job, his beautiful gardens, his family, his friends, 
just to come to America so that we could have a better life. And that's what Daddy did for us. He did not know if he was ever going to go back, which he never did. But what Daddy didn't know was that God had a plan on that transfer. God had his hands on it. And that what Daddy didn't know, what there was a man here waiting in America to lead him to the Lord because he was going to die in five years. What Daddy didn't know was that had we stayed in Cape Verde, when he died, the rain stopped. His gardens would have shriveled. Mine would have been a widow with eight kids. And we would have had to go to all our, um, our godparents. Because in Cape Verde, they chose godparents very, very carefully. Because if you died, you went. So all eight of us, mine would have never been able to afford us. And we would have gone to our godparents. What Daddy didn't know is that he taught me what sacrifice was all about. He gave up everything for everyone else, but at the end, God took care of him. My given name was Maria de Jesus. My family affectionately called me Bia. Not B-E-E-R, but B-I-A. And I loved that name. Um, my brother Manny and I, I was the, oldest of, the youngest of the girls, and my brother Manny was the youngest of the boys. And I don't know which one of us was the shyest. And my husband always says that I was. And the fact that I'm standing here talking to you, God is stretching me. You know? It's like, you know. I never liked my middle name to Jesus. I would say to myself, in a K-Verdian household, you didn't say out loud, you said to yourself. So I spent a lot of my time saying things to myself. I'd say to myself, who in the world names their kid to Jesus? You know? Well, all the other names in the world, my mother had to pick that name for me. It wasn't until years later that I gave my heart to Jesus that I realized how powerful my name was. My name, literally translated, means being who belongs to Jesus. It also dawned on me that from birth till the time my mother went home to be with Jesus, when she couldn't talk anymore at 97, when she got sick, she always said my full name. She always did. She would say in Creole, in English it said, Bia, who belongs to Jesus, don't forget to bring the clothes in from the line. Okay? Bia Zizush, comida ta pront, ben come. In English, Bia, who belongs to Jesus, don't, the food is ready, come and eat. Every time my mother spoke my full name, she was declaring, that I belong to Jesus. Whether she knew it or not, that's what she was saying. All heaven heard it and rejoiced. All hell heard it and was afraid. You have to really be careful what you name your children. If you're young and you're planning a family, names are so important. Names are powerful. By the time your child leaves your house, you would have said their name over 6,600 times. And that's only if you, you spoke their name once. 
until they were 18. Be careful what you say to your kids. Don't tell them they're no good, they're not going to make it. Okay? Don't tell them all that. Because all hell hears it and rejoices. But all heaven hears it. And they look for somebody on the earth to pray against that word of declaration. That's what heaven does. There's always hope when heaven hears. Our house on the weekends was always full of life. It was full of music and company. I just thrived on music. My house, um, it just was all music. I couldn't wait for Fridays to come home for the weekends. My sister Sedora, who was nine years older than me, her name was Maria Auxiliadora, but we would call her Sedora for short. We would sew all week so we could make our dress for the dances on the Saturday. She's the one that got me out of the house because mine was strict. She'd say, mine, I'm taking beer out. I'm going out and I'm taking beer with me. And mine would say, Bacadales, you know, go with God. You know, I was always with her. She never minded taking me, her little sister dragging her around. She loved me and I adored her. When she went home to be with Jesus at 46 of breast cancer, it broke my heart. But I know she's with Jesus. I would always tell her that when I grow up, I'm going to be just like you. She was my role model. She was beautiful on the inside and beautiful on the outside. She looked so much. My daughter Faithy looks a lot like her. She taught me so much by how she carried herself wherever she went. She had a kind heart, and people loved her. And she was fair, but she still wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She sold all her clothes. She was my example that a woman could look classy without having everything hanging out. The dance hall was right up the street. My sister and I, we'd get up every Saturday morning, and we'd wash our hair and put our big old rollers on and our kerchief, and we'd go downtown looking for um, all the accessories that we needed for the dance. Of course, she would pay for everything. My niece's dad, who was a musician, he would be at the house practicing and fine-tuning all his instruments, his, his guitar and his violin, and, um, and I loved to hear him play. My whole life was music. I loved music. I thrived because my mother was strict and we couldn't do anything else. The girls stayed in the house. They had to wash the dishes. And so I longed for the weekends. I longed for the dances. And that's what I longed for. I couldn't wait to go to the dances because my friends would be there and everyone else would be there. When we, my mom couldn't go, she would send my brother and he had to be the chaperone. But when mine would go, it was kind of tough because mine could never get out of the house. Mine is mother, we say mine. Mine would be checking the stove, checking the door, unplugging this and unplugging that. And it would take us forever to get out of the house. But the funny thing is, I do the same thing mine used to do. You know? The only thing I don't do is the unplugging. If mine could unplug the stove and the refrigerator, she would have. Okay? Uh, 
On Sunday was visiting day. We'd go and visit our family. Mine would say, Maria, when they put the food there, make sure you take it. You know, by the time you went to the fourth house, you know, you, had, you were pretty full. To this day, I don't like orange soda or ginger ale, you know. <laughs> Mine was very hospitable, so when you came to her house, she would have food ready, and then she would always give you something to take home. She never, you never left her house empty-handed. Now, we also had a table. It was custom, I guess, in Cape Verdean houses. I don't know, maybe just my house, where there'd be a table with the alcohol beverage, and you'd have the little shot glasses. My brother Frankie, because he was the man of the house, he would distribute to the guests when they came. But this was all about to change. One day, my brother Sly went to a Spanish church, and he accepted Jesus. And he was told that there was a church right across the street from us that we could go that spoke English. So he started going. And then he had someone come and talk to mine. Mine wasn't speaking good English at the time. And so the guy came and invited her to church. So she said she was going to go. So she landed up in the Portuguese Sunday school they had. It was called Farios de Senhor. And for a while going there, mine came home. Something was different about her. Something changed in Mine's life. I remember Mine coming home from Sundays. She took all that liquor that was there and dumped it all down the drain. Even the, the, the shot glasses weren't spared. And then on another Sunday when Mine came home, I heard a noise outside the door. And I remember saying, boy, what in the world is that? And that was Mine with a hammer banging every saint that she had but she had all the saints in her room that she used to pray to, and she just broke them all. You know, mine had declared that day that Jesus was going to be the Lord of her home. And that's what mine said. And years later, I found out that mine had a scripture that she used to, she used to stand on. And that scripture was that my children shall be disciples taught of the Lord. And this is what mine stood on. I didn't pray to the saints, so that didn't bother me. I didn't even drink the liquor, so I didn't care. But when mine decided that because she gave her heart to Jesus, she could no longer go to that hall and keep her testimony, she added me in it, too. The thing is that when you have an experience with God and you have all your kids, and you have that experience, you don't realize that your kids didn't have that experience yet either. You know, they have to come along with you. And sometimes we forget that. It's like their life just gets changed out of nowhere. So I internalized my frustration. I was frustrated. I was angry. But because I lived in Mine's house, I had no choice. There was no democracy there. Mine didn't say, oh, Bea, do you want to go to church? No, I had to go. You know, I had to go to church on a Wednesday night. I had to go to church on a Sunday, and as if that wasn't bad enough, I had to go to church on a Sunday night, too. I became resentful towards mine. And, I, and to, when she was going home to be with Jesus, I had to tell her I was so sorry for that. In my heart, I became so resentful. And I was resentful towards the church for that for ruining my life as I thought they had. 
I would say to myself, when I turn 18, again to myself, I'm getting out of this house, you know. The funny thing is I didn't leave mine's house till I was 27 years old. That's when I met Pastor Mike. He always says he delivered me. But in Kabir, when you, when you stay that, uh, the youngest one usually lands up, ta- if you don't get married, you stay and you take care of your parents. That's how it is. The older one gets married first. I'll tell you. In a few, I will tell you. Mine knew that while I was at church, I was like that kid that was physically sitting but on, in my heart, I was standing and rebellious. So what did mine do? Mine began to pray. That's what she did. Mine prayed. I would be heating mine's breakfast, and I'd say, Mine, your breakfast is ready. And mine would say, Pia, one minute. That one minute seemed like hours. For, I'd be reheating that breakfast, reheating those eggs, and they turned green. By the time mine came to eat her breakfast, mine would be calling down the generations. She'd be praying for me. She'd be calling out my name, calling everybody else in the family, and calling it out to God. So when those eggs turned green, mine ate them and didn't even complain about it. What mine taught me, the importance of prayer. And that prayer was more important than those green eggs. While attending church, I was introduced to this youth group. It was called Youth of Flame. On Fridays of all days, they taught us the word, and we fellowshiped. You know, this group would go out into the park that was close to the, to the church, and they would give their testimonies of what Jesus did for them. God was working on my heart. I would stand there and I would watch. On Saturdays, what they would do for us is they had this white Volkswagen van, and we would get in this van, crammed in there. This was before seatbelt laws. And we'd all cram into that van and go places. I never went because I was so sheltered. Go-kart racing was like, wow, you know? And we'd go mountain climbing, and we'd have so much fun, and we'd go to visit other churches and other youth. And the good thing is that we bonded. And in this little church, my nieces and all of them go, and they have bonded. They bonded, and their kids have bonded. It's like down the generation. It was here in this youth group that God began to work on my hardened heart. One day during youth service, I don't even know who preached or what they said, but I went running down that aisle. And I remember sobbing my head off. I remember crying. I remember with my friends, too, was that a lot of the friends, I didn't want to give them up. And I thought if I came to Jesus, I'd have to get rid of my friends, too. I thought of all the things I had to give away for Jesus. All that resentment that I had towards mine began to fall because I know God was working in my heart. 
And a lot of times things look good on the outside, but your heart, your heart condition, you know, my heart condition wasn't in a good place. I say that the only place When I went down to give my heart to Jesus, Ruthie, the pastor's daughter, led me to God. She led me to God. And Ruthie, I don't know how long she discipled me, but it seemed like months. Ruthie would call, she would visit, she would pray, and she would listen. I say that the only place that Ruthie didn't go with me was the bathroom. <laughs> Mine would say, Pia, Ruthie's here. And I'd say, oh, you know. Ruthie's here, you know, but Ruthie was there. She really was on top of me. She taught me so much, you know. I always say that the youth group came at a pivotal time in my life because I really don't know where I would have been with my hardened heart. I could have rebelled more. To this day, I don't know, only God. Chris Barboza, who's in charge of the youth here, said something a few months ago. And he said this, if the church doesn't make room for their youth, then the world will. I am forever grateful to mine, to all the people in that little church that prayed for me. People would come up to me and say, I'm praying for you. My pastors that were numerous, too numerous to name, Mrs. Baptista, who I tell you, I think she was filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues and just hiding in an evangelical church because Miss Baptista would lay hands on you and all heaven would come down. I think of the scripture that Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, which really wraps it. He says, I have been poured out like a drink offering and every drop of me is finished now I'm prepared to die my prayer is that by the time I see Jesus that everything he's put inside of me I will pour it out to others because Miles Monroe says this I love Miles Monroe he said don't die full die empty. So I encourage you for all the gifts that you have, all the talents that God has put inside of you, time is short. We really don't know when Jesus is coming. But when you compare eternity to, to now, eternity is longer. So pour, pour every gift God has given you. Don't be, look at me. I was shy. You think that I loved coming up here? But I was shy. God has moved me. I'm at that point now where I'm saying, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm going to do. You know? I will do it afraid. Miss Bonnie said it one time to my daughter. Do it afraid. If you have to do it afraid, just do it. You know? You know? Just do it. You know, whatever God has called you to do, do it. You know? Jesus was our greatest example of this. Okay, he emptied himself and he poured out himself so that we could have that Zoe kind of life. So I am grateful. I am grateful to God.
giving all glory to God. I was very nervous about this. <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, Lord, help me to share, because I've been looking at it, praying, and writing down things, but it didn't seem to all come together. So I finally had to say to my husband, <laughs> help me get a thought here so I could bring it all together. Because so much, so much, so much. I don't know where exactly to begin. I may have to read it just so I can. I, um, I was, I guess I will give you a little background because the other ladies did. I was born in the Midwest in Ohio. Uh, the daughter, the first daughter and my sister coming of, of two parents. And we had a good home. I grew up, though, feeling that somehow I had to, I don't know when it all started. I just know that I've had a little bit of anxiety, probably in different forms which came out more uh, later in life because my parents were a little, uh, their nervous system, a little uh, high-strung perfectionist. Their home was spotless and everything was in place. And I think my sister and I once said to each other, we just knew we better do what was right because we did not think we could not do that, you know. I remember when I was a little girl, when we lived in our first apartment and moved down because we had to stay with my grandma for a while when they moved from where my father was, uh, was raised down about 45 minutes to where I was in Dayton, Ohio. And the, at the apartments, we lived with my grandma for about six months, and that was good. And uh, I know my grandmother was a little bit influential as I look back because she even wrote me a letter when my daughter was born. And she was very strong at the Methodist church, and I grew up Methodist. And but back to my father, I remember her taking me out. I picked somebody's flower at the apartment house that wasn't ours. So my father took me over to those people in the apartment and made me, you know, tell them, apologize that I had done that. And I just think that I always wanted to excel and perform, but we all have a past, and that's why we are the way we are. But the wonderful thing is God made us that way for a reason. Because, you see, if I wouldn't have gone through some of this, I wouldn't know how you, what you're going through or feel God's heart for you, too. And that's the beauty of us sharing. Look what the Lord has done. I always had uh, a little bit of, I don't know. I, I had 
a good school. Well, and I would be an A-B student. I always did well. I had one teacher in the fifth or the fourth grade, I think it was. And she was like, I had a picture of her. I was her favorite, you know, A student. <laughs> and we really had a relationship. And I'm sure my, hopefully my parents were proud of me and my sister. My sister was that way, but in a different way. And being the second child and I was the first child. And somehow you seem to feel responsible when you're the first child. And I picked that up a lot, and so did Pastor John, because he was the first child. And um, so it's always been important in our lives. This is really hard for me to be, because I feel there's so many seasons of life I don't always remember, because we moved here when we got married and came to New England, and we weren't able to leave. I think I'll read it. <laughs> Because, um, so, and I said that about my parents, and they were so loving. They were good parents, and I know they weren't perfect. Nobody's are, but I knew they loved me, and they were touchy-huggy and very lovey, and my sister and I were very close, almost like twins, and um, so they um, went on to be with the Lord, and uh, thank heavens, they were still there when we were here in ministry. But I got to spend some very meaningful time with them, and I know they're in heaven. So that was a reward. <laughs> and because there's no distance in the spirit, so no matter what God knows... And he hears your prayers, your desires. I would have loved to have taken care of my mom, but my sister had already, uh, you know, decided to do that way back. So she took care of my mom and did a beautiful job. And so we could go and help her do whatever. So it, it, it's been a little hard for me because I never, I think I better read it. In ministry, I thought I could be a do-it-yourself project. Because I thought, wow, you know, I've gone to school. I loved going to Bible school. And um, I, I would have stayed there, actually. <laughs> if we could have, I loved it there. Because it was like the Midwest to me, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Even my parents loved it when they would come out, too. And... Uh, but then, you know, we came here because God called us and he got a hold of us at Bible school. And because he worked so hard in our life, we weren't even born again that long when we went to Bible school. And uh, so we were pretty new at this. And I remember that um, I just thought, wow. I had no idea about being a pastor's wife, but I loved being a Christian, and I loved God so much, because when I grew up, I felt that God was, you know, way up there, and I could maybe ask him about big things, but he wouldn't really care about other things, 
I mean, I just didn't think I would have any business talking to him or telling him anything. And I just felt that, um, that, you know, that was my image of God. And I'm sure we all have an image of God from when we grow up, from everything. But the truth is not, and when I became born again, that was so wonderful. Because my husband and I went on a marriage encounter weekend. When we went to school, we had known pastors here. And they wanted us to work in the church with them because we'd met on a marriage encounter weekend. And we got called to do them actually in the Catholic uh, denomination because they were the first ones to really present it. And that's how we got our part of a, a baptism in the spirit. We went to the, you know, uh, the um, La Salette or wherever we were. And in those days, it was really something, you know, and there, it was, you know, such an awakening to know Jesus. And I remember sitting on my bed and we lived outside of Boston. My husband, uh, we, we moved to, I'm getting jumbled. I'm sorry. Am I still making sense? Um, so, we, when we first came to this area, it was because my husband was going to law school. I'll just put that little PS. He was going to law school. So I worked at Children's Hospital so I could support him as he did that. And then, and then later we were called to go into the ministry. So when we went out to Raymond to the first camp meeting, we realized, hmm, and uh, knew that we really did need to go to Bible school and that there was a call of God on our life. So that's what happened. And um, so, but somehow I wanted to know God more and Jesus. Because when I went to Bible school, I knew God because I had a good father image. And so when I learned about God, I could really receive. So I got healings at Bible school. I mean, I've had amazing, amazing things happen in my life. Lots of healings, even cancer. Um, you know, tumors or things like that. I mean, um, when I went to Bible school, I remember... I I don't know why I'm saying all this. I remember I had my daughter, and I think I had, I must have had a little postpartum depression, very slight, because when we went to Raymond then, I think, well, she was six or five, and my son would have been eight or nine. And, and uh, I was healed of a lot of things. <laughs> it was just like, wow. I was thrilled because I knew a father God. I mean, I really knew him, and that he must be helping. He was showing favor and helping me, and I was doing what I was learning. I went to school with my husband because when I went out there, the Lord showed us when we talked to them, oh, no, you're supposed to go too. And then we went to Ramah, and I found out on the way out, after we packed up our house, got rid of all of our baby things, and said, 
Oh, two children is nice. We have two children and a dog. Okay. We got rid of all the things and had to get ready quickly and uh, to make that transition to put our house on the market. And, um, and so <laughs> then I found out we got there and I didn't feel very well. And we found out I was going to have twins, but not right away. And then we just found out, okay, you know, this is different. A whole new life. (laughs) God has a sense of humor. He had to take us out to bring us back. Oh, because he had to, because my husband's a lawyer and that's a way of thinking. So he had to sit there. He's just hoping we could come back after a year. And God said, mm, no, you're going to stay here until I get to work. And so it felt like he just poured everything out. So we had to, we were there. We were there. So we stayed about three and a half years or so. And, uh, and it was wonderful, as I say. We had a wonderful church, and, and it was good. We had the twins, and that's another story. All I can say is I don't, wanna, I don't want you to get too moved, but I went to school the whole time, and we're thinking, how are we going to get out of school? Because in those days, you didn't get excuses even for having a baby. I mean, it was tough. Yes. And so we thought, well, there'll be a holiday or something or something will work out. And we had it all planned, thinking, oh, now we're faith giants and we're learning all this word. So this is how it's going to work out. So we had the time planned. No, it didn't work out. And the people in my class, they're like looking and thinking, oh, my gosh, when is she going to go? Because I was so big, I could hardly sit, sit in the chairs. You know, those little desks with the little... <laughs> I could hardly go in the bathroom and shut the door at the school. <laughs> and now I could laugh, but I thought, oh, please, Lord, I hope I don't do this again. And it was so... Um, but it was a miracle because I knew, I have to say... God has been so good to me. I knew there were angels helping me go to school. I knew that we were, you know, things, that things were just all normal because there was a nurse that came alongside of me or lived in where we lived in the apartments. There was a, this is to show you what, this must be why I'm sharing this. This is, was not in my plan or my notes. But, you know, God wants you to know Nothing is too hard for him. And I don't care where you go, you will never, he'll never leave you, and you can't get away from him. And if there's something on you, hmm, it doesn't go away. You can try, but it's still there. So you want to trust and obey, and it's all process, because he just takes us where we are. And he says, let me help you. Let me do the work. How about if we do it together? Because we're all, especially in New England, so um, such self-made people. 
And that has really been, you know, we can't. <clears throat> and now more than ever, we need each other and the body of Christ. And God needs us because of the things in the world and where the world is going. And uh, as Maria said, you know, getting ready. We don't know how long. And we have to kind of take it more seriously to say, let me do my part. Because, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I think I got to obey the Lord. Mm, I got better. Um, I was I was driving around in the car yesterday doing some things in Aaron's, and I was plugging in something we got from Barbara Arbo. Remember, she was here four years ago, I think, around Mother's Day. And she has a history with Pastor Sam. She uh, prayed for this church. She really, I didn't realize until she shared it that she had all those connections. And um, so I'm listening to it because she had one of the Bluetooth and I could plug it in. So I'm listening to it. And then I turned this part on. And it was called Streams. And what have we been talking about? The river. And Pastor John is saying how much more we need each other as the times. And we're in a war. I know my son was up here, too, saying, you know, we can't just stay in our foxhole. Uh, we really have to fight. We're in a war, a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. I mean, yeah. No, I lost her. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so like in the war. Oh, and this where she was, where Barbara was coming from. I will listen to it, and I was just like, yes, because I really feel that. I really feel that heart. It was about the war in Iraq, and she was saying how they were praying, because then she was at a church in. Texas with Bob Nichols, who was Pastor Sam's, one of his best friends. Well, they did prayer and a prayer tower there. And she was, you know, just going off about Psalm 91, Psalm 91, and um, how we're praying for the troops, how she'd never prayed so hard, and just some of her testimony. And she quite has a testimony. She's quite a woman of the word and prayer. And they have the sanctuary up in New Hampshire now which was a dream. Anyway, so it's just that I think the word she uses is it's time to sacrifice. And what has Pastor John been teaching? Follow. Pick up your cross and follow. Not man. Jesus, because see, Jesus is the only one, because in the world you can say God, but you can't say Jesus. Then people get uncomfortable, because he's the dividing line. It's all our relationship, and when Terry Law came, that just brought me right back to my relationship with Jesus. If it weren't for that, 
I don't know who I would be. We would have been divorced. We would have lost our daughter. We would have, I mean, um, I mean no telling, because there's opposition when you're in this position. And uh, that's why we need each other, and we need you to pray for, the, for us and our family and for the pastors, because we're in a serious time. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, honey. It's because I'm anxious. I, I'd rather not be here. <laughs> this was not our plan. Our plan was to uh, take a little season of ministry that would be a little easier. But now things have changed again. So... But God worked in my heart. I mean to tell you, this is big. He will take care of you. I have been anxious, alone. I mean, this position can be very lonely. But aside from that, I have no self-confidence. I was always quiet before. I would be the silent partner with my husband. Because he's, you know. And then, uh, but all of a sudden, it's like, but I want more of God. I want to know. Because when you come to him and you're come, let him come to you, that's the hard part. He will carry some of this. It's not about us. It's not about us. And not to be afraid because we have so much. And so I just learned, uh, because my family upbringing was that certain way, that I could be more positive. Or I mean, it's just been a walk, you know, to learn different things. And, but we've all had anxiety. We've all had stress. I have a feeling that in the last two years, that if there was a scale, it's risen. For everybody, because, yeah, and there is so much, but because of him, 